So I want you to picture the periodic table of the elements. And so 118 elements where 92 of these appear in nature and the rest appear only in lab conditions. But all of these elements are what everything that you see in the created world, everything in the physical world is made of these elements. So there's not one thing that you can see or feel, or touch that exists physically, that is not made of one of these 118 elements. They all have unique chemical and physical properties that are what make up everything that we see. Now, these elements are made of atoms. So this is just a recap of of high school for some of you. Some of you are in the middle of this right now in school, But atom is the smallest, most fundamental unit of matter. So at the core of everything that exists, you will find molecules, which is bonded atoms. So so a grouping of bonded atoms are molecules. And so we're talking about the molecular structure of everything that exists physically. Now, I'm not talking about the spiritual world. That doesn't have atoms. That's spiritual. But the physical one does. And so here's my point. You're like, where is this going? (laughs) At the core of everything that you see, at its, the core of something defines its nature, what it looks like, what it feels like, how it behaves. And so whether it's a gas or whether it's a solid or a liquid, whatever its state is, how you would look at it and what at its nature, it's defined by what's at its core down to its molecular structure. And so the core of something defines what it is, and it also shapes it. And that is true spiritually. See, there are certain truths from God's word. The core we're talking about here are these truths that define who you are and are designed to shape what your life looks like. And so what is true in the physical world is mirrored in the spiritual world. And so we're going to be looking at the core of what God has revealed. And the reason why is because we want to understand how it is God is defining who we are as his people that are called out of the world to be set apart for God and how his word shapes what our lives are to look like. And so these are distinctive truths that we're going to be looking at for the whole summer. These are propositional truths. These are statements of truth. We'll be looking at like what is God like? We'll be looking at things like, well, what is the Trinity? We'll be considering things like, what does it mean to be saved? And so what is justification? What is regeneration? What is sanctification? These sound like big words, but these words are all in the Bible. Like, these are not made up. These are biblical terms. Yes, theological categories, but they're found in 
the Bible. Now, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the Trinity is described in the Bible. So for the, for the next few months from today through the end of August, so for the whole summer, we're going to be considering the core of what we believe as a church. We're going to be doing this biblical and theological study to learn our fundamental non-negotiable, so can't be debated, truths. So this is a theological study for the summer. Now, some of you are thinking, what did I walk into? Like, first time here, maybe last time here, you're thinking, why are we studying theology? What's the point? Why do we even need to study theology? Because maybe some of you in the room might think to yourself, theology is about big books and maybe big brains, big egos, big arguments. And theology simply just leads to division and endless debating and different positions and different opinions. And it does not unify church. It causes division in the church. Or others, you might think, well, those types of theological discussions are helpful for like pastors because they need to know. I don't, I don't know why, but I, I guess they need to know that because they're pastors or theologians or professors in seminary. They should know those things, but I'm just a regular person. Like, I don't need to worry about theological discussions. That's over my head, and it's not helpful or even necessary. I love Jesus. That is enough for me. And others of you love the mission. You love reaching the lost. And so you think to yourself, why are we wasting time talking about theology and different theological conversations when we should just be reaching the lost? People just need to hear about Jesus. And we don't have to waste time considering the nature of sin, the nature of humanity, the nature of the Bible, the nature of whatever. Like, that's just navel-gazing. It's how some people think of it. But let me just try to maybe, if that's where you're at, challenge your thinking. That God has a purpose for theology. And the very word theology comes from two Greek words. This is not hard. It's straightforward. The word ology means what? Study of, right? We, we, we know. That's not a hard one. So ology just means study of. Now, in Greek, the word theos is the word for God. And so theosology just means study of God. So that's what the word means. And so don't overthink it. It just means studying God. But here's the thing that you have to understand about studying God. God has been pleased. It brought him joy, made God happy because he's a happy God. He's not an angry God or a disappointed God or a depressed God or a vengeful God. He's the happy God, the blessed God. And it, it made God happy to reveal himself to us. And he revealed himself to us so that we could be filled with joy in knowing him. See, let me give you one verse that describes what theology is actually about. It's in John 17, verse 3. 
It should be on the screen. This is Jesus speaking. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God. The point of your existence is to know God. And so theology is not about learning knowledge. The goal is not to have more informed sinners. The goal is not to puff up your head with pride because you know big words. And you can show off and everyone else is so impressed with how much you know. And then it fuels this idolatry of knowing more and this pride that then we use theology as a selfish end to show off how spiritual we think we are when our hearts don't even actually love Jesus. So the goal is not academic learning as a learning as an end. The end is not learning. The means is learning. The end is Enjoying Jesus. The point is worshiping Jesus, knowing God. Theology is just the means that allows us to know God. And so the better that we know God, the more joy we're going to experience in him. And so think back to when you first met your wife, when, before you were even dating. When you first met her, you thought, Oh, this, this woman, she's amazing. And not just what she looks like. Like when you got to know her and you realize, whoa. And then you wanted more and more time with her. And you want to get to know her better and, and better. And the more you began to know her, the more what happened to your heart. Yeah, it opened up. And the more that you began to love this other person because you began to know them And it's the same thing with any activity that you're going to do, whether it's music or sports or arts or any kind of craft. The more you know it, the better you're at it. Guess what happens? The more you enjoy it. So the more that we know God and see his infinite perfections, the more that you will enjoy him. The more that we know, the more joy that we experience. And so when our theology is man-centered, it leads to arrogance and division. But when our theology is gospel-centered, God-focused, Jesus-exalting, spirit-led, you know what happens? Our minds fill with knowledge, but it doesn't just stay there. Our hearts fill with joy. Our imagination fills with awe. Our soul fills with worship. And that's the point. The whole point of theology is that we would know God and be able to worship him. So over the summer, we're going to be looking at the core of our beliefs that define us and shape us. And it's not going to be random. It's going to be very intentional. We're going to work through the Renewal Church statement of faith. So it, I'm not just like 
picking random theological topics. We're going to work through our statement of faith, which is on the website. So you can go on there now and you can look up the website. If you're a member, then you've already seen it and, and you've agreed to it and you've signed the covenant and you're a member. And so this is nothing new to members. They've read it before. They agree with it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be part of this church. So if you're a member, then by definition, you agree with the statement of faith. But we're going to spend the summer looking at it more in depth and better understanding the implications of our statement of faith. Now, some of you are wondering, well, what is a statement of faith? What is that? Well, the statement of faith is just a summary of our non-negotiable biblical and theological beliefs. So biblical truths that describe who we are as a church, what we believe, and why we believe it. So again, our core truths that summarize what we stand for as a church. Now what's important to note is not just the 15 statements that we believe, what's also important is what's not on that list. Because you'll notice that there are many things that aren't on that statement of faith because those are secondary. Those are not primary issues. The only statements that you're going to find on these 15 is the non-negotiable, the non-debatable, the essentials, thus the name, the core. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, why do we have a statement of faith? Like, isn't it enough to just say, we worship Jesus and we have the Bible? Like, why do you have to have a 15-statement definition of here's our core beliefs? Well, the reason why is that this statement of faith expresses the faith that lives in our hearts. So as a people of God, we trust in God who has revealed himself very specifically in a very detailed way in the Bible. And so we have a faith that has substance. We are confessing something specific about who our God is to this world. Our faith is not empty or meaningless. Have you noticed that our world is just filled with meaningless and empty and trivial? Have you noticed? If you haven't, have you heard of TikTok? <laughs> empty, meaningless. Have you noticed that our world is filled with fake, from fake news? And honestly, look at Instagram. Guess what you see there? Fake. That's not real. That's posed. That's staged. That's not real life. You're just showing that little part that you want everyone to see, and it's like you're, you're taking the picture, and you have to, like, push the dirty laundry away, and you have to, like, pose to take your picture at the exact angle so everyone sees what you want them to see, but they're not seeing the real thing. They're not seeing behind the scenes. It's fake. And we live in a world that is just full of the trivial, the meaningless, the fake. And the statement of faith says we have something real. Something with substance. We don't have to push anything away to get the right shot. We're saying here it is. Not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. 
So we're not ashamed of God or his word. So our faith has substance and is meaningful to a world that needs Jesus. And so theology is not about just knowledge. It is about knowing God and enjoyment in him. And so my prayer for this church as we begin this series is that you would know God deeply. Now, some of you are thinking, he hasn't even started preaching yet. He's, he's just like giving us the series overview. Yes. Yes, that's right. So we're going to begin this journey over the summer of considering what we believe. And we're going to start off today with just one, not all 15. That's the whole summer. Statement one on what we believe about the Bible. So it should be here on the screen. So here's what we believe. We believe that the Holy Bible was inspired by God, written by men, and is completely free from error. It is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction and reveals the principles by which God will judge us. It includes within it the only way of salvation. It will remain to the end of the world the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested. So if you are a guest at Renewal Church today, you need to know that this is what we believe about the Bible. And if you don't agree with this statement of faith, then you need a different church. Like, this is not for you. This is not going to work for you. Because this is what we believe about the Bible. We're talking today about the God who speaks. We're going to answer three questions about the God who speaks. Number one, how? How does God speak? We talk about God speaking. We talk about the Bible. We're talking about the word is revelation. And I don't just mean the last book of the Bible, Revelation. I'm talking about the God who reveals. So, to, so revelation means that God is revealing himself. And so when God speaks, we're talking about his act of revelation, where he's showing who he is, what he is like, what his purpose is, what is the nature of reality, who are we as humans, what is our problem, which is sin, what is the solution, which is the gospel, and how can someone be saved? He is revealing all of these things in the Bible, revealing our purpose and how to live it and what joy is and how to have it. He's revealing everything about who he is, who we are, and what is our place in the world. And so God is disclosing himself. So this his self-disclosure is revelation. It's God speaking so that we can know. And there's two ways that God reveals himself. The first one is called general revelation. The second one is called special revelation. So let's first talk about general revelation, and then we'll talk about, secondly, special revelation. So God reveals himself in a general way to all people in his creation. So again, God is in a general way revealing himself 
to everyone. And what does God reveal through general revelation? He reveals his existence, that God exists. He's revealing his power, his wisdom, his glory. And so you can go to a mountaintop and not have the Bible. And you go there and know nothing about God. And God is still speaking generally in creation. And you can know a God made this. And he's powerful, and he's creative, and he's wise, and he's glorious. You can know all of that by simply being outdoors. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals Knowledge. So again, revealed. Revelation is revealing God. So it says that the heavens themselves, nature is declaring, is declaring the glory of God. And then if you look at Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." So it says that God has invisible attributes. And he says, he mentions two, his power and divine nature. And the, God is spirit, so he's invisible, but he makes his character who he is known visibly through what has been made. And God is revealing himself. But here's the thing that's very important. General revelation does reveal God's majesty and power. It definitely does do that in its general knowledge of a God who exists. And God is speaking clearly. But Romans 1 is very clear. The people he's describing here, humanity in this text, are lost. They don't worship Jesus. It says they suppress the truth, and are without excuse. And so what we find here is that general revelation is sufficient to condemn us to hell. It is not sufficient to save us. We talked about this last week on that innocent person that has never heard and how there's no such thing as an innocent person person and they were called to go because they need to hear they need to know that God loves them and Jesus died for them because this revelation in a general way is only sufficient enough for us to know that there is a God I'm accountable to him but there is no information on how to be saved. And so if you're on the mountaintop and you're in awe and you think a God must exist, but does that let you know that you're a sinner? 
Will that mountaintop experience reveal to you that Jesus is the son of God who came into this world, became a human, died on the cross for your sins, raised from the dead, offers you forgiveness and hope and joy and eternity with him? Will you learn that by being in a forest? No. No, you won't. We need special revelation. God has to speak in a way beyond in a general way so that we can know who God is and know how we can be saved. So that brings us to special revelation, which is God speaking through his word. That leads us to know who God is, to know that we are sinners, to know that we're made in God's image, to know our worth, and to know that Jesus died for us, to know the way of salvation. We need the Bible, God's special revelation for us, to know the Lord and to find our joy in him. And God has been speaking his word from the very beginning. He spoke to Adam and Eve, and he gave them his purpose. He spoke to them. He spoke to Noah, revealing how he can be saved from judgment. He spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and made promises to the patriarchs of these men who would bring us the people of God. He spoke promises to them that he has kept. He spoke to Moses and gave him his word, the law that literally created them as his people that are set apart and different from the rest of the nations. God spoke through the prophets. God spoke and has been speaking ever since the beginning of creation. He created us through his word and then Jesus is now who is called the Word in John 1, 1, is recreating us. And so we are creatures of the Word, made by the Word, sustained by the Word. There are certain Christian traditions, primarily Catholic, but just others as well, that would argue that the church makes the Word that the church defines what the word is and that the church councils made the word and that the church somehow is a gatekeeper of the word. That is backwards. The church does not make the word. The word makes the church. It is the word that shapes us, that defines us, that sustains us. It is the word that is living and active that pierces us and exposes us so that we can then be made new in Christ Jesus, who is the word of God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the final and complete revelation of God. 
And so when we read the Bible, understand something. It is not about you. You are never the hero of the story. When we read the Bible, we tend to want to insert ourselves as Joshua who found victory. We want to insert ourselves as David who slayed his giant. We think that we're like Moses on the mountaintop. We're not. We're not ever. We're the Israelites on the bottom that are in sin worshiping a calf. That's us. We are the scared Israelites that are running away in fear. Not David. That's Jesus. He is the final David. Jesus is the final Moses who brings us the word. Our, our place is the one needing saving, not doing the saving. Our place is the one who is desperate for a savior. So the Bible fundamentally is not about you or me. It is not a self-help book. The Bible, the Bible is not Oprah Winfrey self-help stuff. That's not what it is. The Bible is not chicken soup for the soul. It's not. The Bible is not a manual for how to live your best life now. It's not. That's not what the Bible is. The point of the Bible is to reveal the stunning glory of Jesus. It is about revealing his majesty. His infinite perfections. That we would be in awe. And lay our lives down. Surrendering to him. Receiving his salvation. Knowing him. See, the Bible is so much a treasure. Because it leads us to know God. And so we don't worship the Bible. We don't worship an object. We don't worship theology. We don't. That's too small. So we don't worship theological learning or information. What we worship is the God that the Bible and theology points us to. We worship Jesus. We love a person who first loved us. So we have a God who speaks. And because we hear him, we love him. And so to know God is to love him. We study theology, we study the Bible because the heart cannot love what the mind does not understand. If your mind has no comprehension of who God is, because you've never bothered to read this or study it, if your mind does not know God, then your heart will not love him. You may get emotions, sure. But do you think those emotions will take you deep where your roots go so deep, where you're going to be able to be sustained when life comes at you hard? 
won't. So it is knowing God that leads us to love him. So how does God speak? He speaks through general revelation in nature and special revelation through his word. Number two, what is the nature of God speaking? So what are the attributes of the Bible? So if you were doing theology, this would be like bibliology. So studying the Bible. So what is the Bible like? What are some attributes? Now, I'm going to go very quick. This could be a very long, this could be a series, but we're going to do it like in a few minutes um, on what is the nature of the Bible. And I'm going to give you four key words, all right? And it's an acronym, so you can remember it. SCAN, S-C-A-N, as in scan the Bible. All right, you can remember that. The S, what is Bible like? The Bible is sufficient. So this would be a whole conversation on the sufficiency of Scripture. That could be a whole sermon, easy, on how the Bible is sufficient. It contains everything that we need to know about Christ, about salvation, about living a life of obedience that leads to joy. We don't need any new revelation. So if someone comes and gives you a new revelation, you reject it. Because the Bible is sufficient. So the the sufficiency of Scripture lets us know that we can rest in this closed canon. We don't add anything to the Bible. But, But let me talk for a second, though, about how this gets awfully real. It's great to have these lofty declarations up front. But what about when life gets hard? What happens when you have a Category 5 hurricane go through your life and it just wrecks you? And you look at your life and it's, it's shambles. Is God's word sufficient? What happens when the disappointment and the pain And the suffering is so deep that you can't even breathe. And it's so heavy on your chest. And you're in uncertainty. And you honestly don't know if it's going to be okay. Is God's word sufficient? When you wake up one day or you come to the realization that you've been living blindly, foolishly in a unhealthy or sinful pattern and lifestyle, and you find yourself wanting to break free from it, but realizing that in your own strength, you've tried and you failed and you're addicted or you're stuck or you're in a rut and you just wonder, how am I ever going to change? And the question for us that we have to be honest with and answer for real is, is God's word sufficient? Or are you looking elsewhere for hope? Are you looking somewhere other than the word for life and freedom and healing and hope? Where are you actually looking? Because so often, if we're honest, we don't even bother to open the Word. 
and it challenges our theology. We say that the Bible is sufficient. Is it? Because the truth is that it is. You will not find freedom or hope or healing anywhere else. And the reason why is that the Bible leads you straight into the presence of God himself. It leads you to God, and he is the one who brings hope and freedom and healing. And so what is a Bible like? Sufficient. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. His word is true and reliable. We don't add anything to it. It is a closed canon. The Bible is sufficient, and the only hope that we have in this life is to run straight to God, and we find him, we feed our souls through his word. Next, clear. The Bible is clear. Talking about the clarity of Scripture. So the saving message of Jesus is taught plainly in the Bible. It can be understood. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't have to read Greek. You don't have to read Hebrew. You don't have to know all the Jewish history. You don't need all of that. Now, is it bad to learn history or learn the original languages? No, that's great. You can get some history, and it's helpful. It's, it's, it's good. But do you need that in order to know God in his word? No. The Bible is clear. You can read the Bible on its own. And so the clarity of Scripture is very important for believers because we can take, at, take God at his word. Now, this does take work. Like, I'm not going to deny it. It takes effort to study it, and we need to. But the Spirit has a role, what's called illumination. The Spirit illuminates. He sheds light on the Word as believers read it and so that we can understand it. So the sufficiency of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture. Number three, the authority of Scripture. So the Bible is authoritative. It is the final authority. And you're like, well, why is the Bible the authority? Well, because it is inspired. So the inspiration of Scripture is what gives the Bible authority. Human authors inspired by God, breathed by God. 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. And so it was not produced by the will of man, but it's God's Word carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we're seeing here in, in um, 2 Peter 1 is that it's human authors carried along, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we can trust that this is indeed God's word. So it's authoritative because it's inspired and also because it's infallible. So the infallibility of scripture. They're incapable of teaching error. They're perfect and trustworthy. This is indeed perfect. It is completely trustworthy. 
because it is infallible with no error. The Bible is also inerrant. So the inerrancy of scripture, it means that the scriptures are fully and completely true in everything that they assert. So there is no error in the Bible. It's inerrant, no error, completely true. And so the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is what gives the Bible authority. So sufficient, clear, authoritative, and lastly, necessary. Again, scan, S-C-A-N. The Bible is necessary. So the necessity of Scripture. What we need most, we can't discover on our own. Like there will be no way for us to know who God is and what his ways are, how to be saved. This, the gospel is not a human message. No human invented it. It is a divine message. It comes from God. And so for us to know him, we need the Bible. There's no other way. And so we need to believe that the Bible is indeed sufficient and clear, authoritative, and necessary. So how does God speak? He reveals generally and especially through the Bible. How? Sufficient, or the nature of it. What is it like? Sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. Now, before we move on to the last one and kind of wrap up today, I want to address one. This could be so long. I'm going to be brief on this one. Some of you are thinking, wait a second. So you're talking about like God speaks in these two ways. But what about he speaks to my heart? Or what about the Holy Spirit like prompting us or, or offering us guidance and so leading us? And so... Is there, is there like another way that God speaks besides the Bible and besides in nature? Well, the Bible clearly does talk about being led by the Spirit. So there's no doubt. Denying that is denying the Bible. So yes, he definitely does prompt our hearts. And there's such a connection between, between the Bible, so reading and with prayer. And so I believe that what's important is to meditate. So you read the Bible and spend time thinking about it, meditating on it, journaling. And then that can lead you into your prayer time. And it's in these times of quiet meditation when you're thinking about the word and then you're praying it back to God that the Spirit definitely does confirm things or puts thoughts in your mind. And so like, we're not denying that there's something mysterious and mystical, if you want to use that word, about how spirit works in the lives of believers. So I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. The Bible is clear on that, that we do feel his presence. Spirit does do that. But there's a very important verse I want us to read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's actually three short verses, verses 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit. So there it says, like, don't quench, like walk in the spirit. So don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. So that should be on the screens here in just a second. But what you see is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, is that we're told to not quench the spirit, to not despise prophecy, but to test and to hold fast what is good. So 
If someone comes to you and says, I was praying and the Holy Spirit gave me a word for you and they try to give you a word and they give you a word that is against the Bible, you reject that word. You say, no, that, that is not from the Lord because it goes against the Bible. So any subjective experience of receiving a word of prophecy from God has to line up with the Bible. If it does not, then it is from a spirit, but not from the Holy Spirit. It has to line up with the Bible. And if you're relying on just subjective emotions and feelings and being led by the Spirit apart from the Bible, then you're doing it opposite of what the Bible describes which is the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus. And so when you are following Jesus through his word, then the Spirit will confirm things and he will lead you, but it will always be from the word. So you have to read the Bible. You cannot rely on emotion alone or just promptings. Those things are they're going to be so much more rich and real and helpful and biblical when you're actually walking with God through his Word, living a life of surrender. And that's a long conversation. We can talk about that more if you want. If you're like, I need to unpack that more, Pastor. Let's go get a coffee. We can talk through that. I mean that genuinely. Um, not everyone at once. So I have to schedule that. <laughs> but I mean that genuinely. Like there's hard things that we can always walk through together. But the point here is that God speaks through his word. This is how we know him, as we close, number three, why? So why does God speak? We talked about how he speaks and what is the nature of the Bible, but why? Why does God speak? Well, God speaks first and foremost for his glory. That's why he speaks, to reveal his glory. He is speaking to reveal what he is like and manifest his infinite perfections. And so the Bible is amazing because it reflects a character of God. So when you read the Bible, you're reading the very heart of God. You're reading what he is like. It's revealing him. And so he speaks to display his glory so that we can then see it and respond with worship, which is the second thing on why does he speak? For his glory, and he speaks for our good. He speaks for our own good. Are you aware that God did not need to speak? He didn't have to. He wanted to. He chose to. Because he loves you as an act of mercy and love. He spoke. I mean, we sing it with our kids, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells you Jesus loves you in your mess your struggles, and your doubt. He loves you. 
And that's why Jesus came and died. And it's for our own good. The main text that reveals our good is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love how this text unfolds it. And it says that it's profitable. It's good for us for teaching. And so that shows us the path our lives should be on. But if you're like me, we get off that path, right? Like daily. And so what does it do? It reproves. It exposes how we got off the path. And so it says he shows us the path. We get off of it. He, he exposes so we can get back on it. And what does it say? For correction. What does correction do? Puts us back on the path. And it says, and for training in righteousness, so we can stay on the path. It's for our own good. He reveals, he speaks for his glory, but for our own blessing. And so we believe that the Holy Bible was inspired by God, written by men, and is completely free from error. It is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction and reveals the principles by which God will judge us. It includes within it the only way of salvation. It will remain to the end of the world the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested. This is what defines this church and will shape us to be a people that display the glory of God that we see in his word. It is all about enjoying God. So may we read the Bible, study the Bible, Treasure it, because in it, we know God.